Let's turn then to our sermon text for today, which is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Uh, you'll remember that in the Gospel of John, he is writing signs uh, that Jesus did so that you may believe in him, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life uh, through believing in him, life in his name. Uh, these are written so that you might believe. And the first sign that was mentioned was turning the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And that was up in Galilee after he had begun calling his disciples to himself after his baptism. And so now we will pick up in chapter 2, verse 13 through 22, where we, we see more, we learn more uh, about uh, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. <clears throat> the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. <clears throat> and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. <clears throat> the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. And dear God, we pray that you would uh, bless this reading of your word from Psalms and Revelation, John. We pray that you would bring it to our mind and conscience that we might uh, be stirred by the truth of Jesus Christ, what he has done, and who he is, we pray that you would give us an understanding and build up our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 13 of this passage gives us the setting, uh, gives us the context for what uh, takes place. Uh, it was the Passover of the Jews. Now, this is one indication that John is writing for an audience which at least contains, if not is largely, uh, Gentiles. Uh, a Jew, of course, known what the Passover was. Uh, but uh, this is the Passover of the Jews, a, a feast that they celebrated, and it was at hand. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. At the time of the Passover, thousands and thousands of Jews from all over would uh, assemble in Jerusalem, not only for Passover, but also for uh, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles and also the Feast of Pentecost. And so Jesus went up. Uh, Luke tells us that his parents would, you know, go uh, year by year to Jerusalem for the Passover. Remember the story of Jesus when he was 12 and he was at his father's house, at his, doing his father's 
about his father's business and uh, now having assumed his public ministry, um, he goes to Jerusalem in that capacity as well. And when he's there, he he goes uh, to the temple. Now, this was the first month of the Jewish year. The time then would be March or April. That was in spring. That's when they dated their calendar from. And uh, he went at that time. Now, John recounts some of the regular trips uh, to Jerusalem that Jesus took. The other Gospels don't really bring, don't talk about Jesus in Jerusalem until the end of their Gospels. It talks about his ministry in Galilee, and then it talks about him going to Jerusalem, at which point he was crucified. Uh, but it doesn't mean that he didn't go earlier. It just only have uh, so much that they can say or that they chose to say. But John mentioned several other times earlier in his ministry that Jesus came down to Jerusalem and taught there. And um, we'll come across those in the course of this book. But it also teaches us more about the length of his ministry, uh, that it seems to have gone on for about three years or maybe a little over three years. Um, And there was this Passover and then other Passovers leading up to that. Uh, last and, and fourth Passover of his ministry. Now, this is probably the first of two cleansings of the temple. The other Gospels recount how Jesus did a similar thing, chasing people out of the temple grounds. Um, at the end of his ministry, as he came to Jerusalem, John puts it at the beginning of his ministry. Now, it's possible that one of them is out of chronological order, but as you look at the details, Both of them are, in context, kind of tied up with the events that he's describing here. You know, he says that Jesus was in Galilee, and then he went to Capernaum, and then Passover was at hand, and so he went up to Jerusalem, and, you know, it goes on to the next thing. So it's pretty uh, easy to think that he did this twice, Uh, once near the beginning, and why not also at the end? Uh, And uh, the other Gospels recount other things that were said. It makes sense if... He did it again. Uh, and uh, the others don't mention this time because they don't mention the visit to Jerusalem at all. And John, though, is recounting these other trips to Jerusalem. <clears throat> now, the event took place at the temple. What was the temple? What, what was important about the temple? The temple was the house of God. It was his earthly holy place. Remember what they had first before the temple. They had the tabernacle. Where did they get plans for the tabernacle? On the mountain of Sinai, where Moses received a a type of the heavenly holy place, God's dwelling place. But he was to recreate this on earth among the people of Israel to show how God would dwell among his people and uh, how God uh, was with them and was sanctifying them by his presence. And as time went along, as they moved to Canaan, there was a more permanent temple built for the same purposes at which sacrifices were offered, the center of Israel's worship and their feasts. The first temple was built by King Solomon. Uh, The other kings took care to cleanse it of idols that had crept in, that other kings had brought in, and they would restore it and and, and oversee its uh, rebuilding. Then when it was destroyed by Babylon, they came back and built it under Governor Zerubbabel. 
But then more recently, it, compared to the time of Christ, King Herod the Great had under had begun a major reconstruction of the temple. It's usually considered the same temple, but he basically took it apart and put it back together and made it grander and bigger. And so it was uh, quite the sight and a wonder to behold at this time of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus comes in, though, and he doesn't like what he sees, and he becomes zealous for his father's house. Jesus is zealous for his father's house. And this passage, Jesus demonstrates his zeal for the temple, and Jesus prophesies his replacement of the temple. He says something interesting about his body being the temple. He would build the final temple in his own resurrection on the third day. But first, let's begin with his demonstrated zeal for the temple in verses uh, 14 through 17. <clears throat> he, he finds there there are people who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Now, that's because people were coming from all over, and it's a lot easier than herding your cattle all across the world uh, to, to simply take your money and to uh, buy the animal sacrifices there. And, uh, and, and so there were animals for sale. There were also money changers because when they came, they also would pay the temple tax, uh, the half shekel tax. Uh, you know, this was a very big project to rebuild the temple. It was expensive. And there had been even a tax instituted in scripture, the, the temple tax. And so uh, they had to pay it, but it was only acceptable at that time in certain types of coin. And so people from all over bringing their own coins would have to change it into the right currency to pay it. So there were money changers there. Uh, these things probably had to happen, but they didn't have to happen in the temple grounds itself. And that's what Jesus finds there. In the temple grounds, not in the, the central house, not the holy place, but in the temple complex in what was known as the court of the Gentiles. They are, it's a market. There's money changers people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And then at 15, verse 15 is quite remarkable. Does it say he goes out and buys a whip? Yeah. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say it in any was, he found a whip on the ground and he picked it up. He made it. A very purposeful and deliberate here. It's not like he, you know, just took what was at hand and started using it. He, he made this whip and he put it together a whip of cords, and then he used it. It was time for a cattle drive. It was time to herd everyone out, uh, not only the animals, but the people too. He made a whip of cords, and then he drove them all out of the temple. Who's them? Well, that's the people selling the stuff and the money changers, and, and then also with the sheep and the oxen, and tries to get them to, and it seems to, to successfully get them to go out of the temple. Uh, business is over. Go out of here. Now, the pigeons were probably in cages. He couldn't herd them out. So he tells the people, take these things away. Tells the people who sold the pigeons, take these things away. And we get an explanation for why he's doing this. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Was the temple supposed to be a house of trade? No. Oh, it was to be a house of prayer. And that was being obscured by all of this commerce that was going on. Where and when they were supposed to be praying and worshiping, especially where the Gentiles were supposed to be worshiping uh, and uh, 
was was disrupting this was treating the holy place with contempt. Now his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That is the explanation, the biblical explanation, this scripture that is giving light on Jesus's actions from Psalm 69, that that long psalm that we read earlier uh, in verse 9 of 69, zeal for your house will consume me. There's at least six different parts of Psalm 69 that are quoted in as many places in the New Testament. Uh, Four are references to Christ. Uh, One is a reference to Judas as enemy of of Christ. And another is referring to those whom God hardens in unbelief, again, in that imprecatory section. Uh, But here at Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house has consumed me, or or as he quotes it here, will consume me. Uh, Perhaps he notes how this passion for his father's will and his father's honor would eventually uh, lead to his crucifixion. You know, perhaps it's looking to what would happen, but it's especially being fulfilled in what was happening in this moment, that zeal for his father's house was eating him up. It was consuming him. It was like a fire that was raging and it was causing him, it was motivating him in this action uh, to stand up for his father's honor and glory to cleanse it. Actually, the second half of that very verse is also quoted by a different author in a different book of the Bible. In Romans 15.3, Paul writes, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Um, reproach is a big theme in that psalm. Those who reproach God, their reproaches <coughs> have fallen upon Christ. Now that's kind of similar how the reproaches on Christ and fall on his people, and it's an honor to suffer for the sake of his name. Well, Christ suffered for the sake of his Father, uh, for uh, bearing the, the zeal for his name and for his house. And he did so by chasing the people out uh, with his whip, and he also poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. Uh, he was disrupting all the activity that was going on there. Now, what can we learn from these verses? First of all, heed the zeal of the Lord Jesus. See to it that you're not on the receiving end of the zeal of the Lord Jesus. Be zealous to repent. As Revelation 2 and 3 warns, Jesus is still the the, the Lord who is zealous for his father's house uh, to purify his church. And he warns his people. He is a shepherd. He seeks to care for them. But he says, but if, if nothing's done, I will, I will purify my church. I will wage war against these false teachers and, and be zealous and repent uh, so that I might come for your good, but not uh, to, to judge. It's not to chastise, not to correct. Uh, heed his zeal. Know that he does not take these things lightly. He uh, is zealous for his father's house. So do not make his father's house a house of trade. Do not treat it like a profane thing. Now, we don't have a temple today right in Jerusalem that we go to. How do we do that? What, what is his father's house? Well, you could apply it in a number of ways, thinking about uh, his church, fellowship of the saints. Think about his worship. 
temple was the place that it was supposed to be a house of prayer, right? The place of worship. We should guard his worship and treat it with reverence and uh, not with contempt. We should also not despise or neglect his teachings, the ways he has revealed himself, not only through the types of the temple, but through his word and the truths that he has taught us. Malachi dealt with a very similar problem in his day. People were despising God's worship. They were offering diseased animals, not really caring about what they offered God, holding him in contempt. The priests didn't really care about what they were teaching. They just tried to please other people. And uh, God said, I am a great king, and I will be feared among the nations. Uh, And in fact, in Malachi, he said that the Lord whom you seek, whom you pretend to seek, whom you say, oh, yes, we would love the Lord to show up. He's like, I'm not sure if you want the Lord to show up the way you're treating him. But the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And, And that is what Jesus did. He came to his temple and he purified uh, the people. And indeed, those who had been waiting for him, those who trusted in him, that was a blessing for them. But he will be one who will purify his people and his worship and his name, his honor, his glory. So heed his zeal, but also imitate his zeal. Follow the Lord Jesus by imitating his zeal for the honor and the Uh, house of God, uh, for his worship, for his name, for his church. Um, Be so far from taking his name in vain, that would be what what we ought not to do, but do the opposite, to to be zealous for his name, uh, to hold it as a weighty and serious thing, uh, to give honor to his name, to be distressed when we see it despised, uh, to maintain it with our word and deed. When John Calvin was during the time of the Reformation and uh, he was to write a book describing why it was necessary for them to reform the church, you know, the Reformation had caused a lot of tumult and some people might thought this is a lot of work and, and trouble. This is really necessary. And so he wrote a book, The Necessity of Reforming the Church. And he uses Christ's example in his argument. He says, Christ, with a whip, drove the money changers out of the temple, threw down their tables, and scattered their merchandise. I admit, it is not lawful for every man to take a whip into his own hand, but it is incumbent on all who professedly belong to Christ to burn with the zeal with which Christ was animated when he vindicated the glory of his Father. Therefore, that profanation of the temple, at which he, in a manner so marked, expressed his strong displeasure, it is at least our part to condemn in a free, firm, and decided tone. Christ was the king. He had the authority to restore the temple, to step in there with the whip, and to chase people out of his father's house. So we do not have the same calling or office as Christ, but we ought to imitate the zeal of Christ, uh, to burn with that same zeal, to, to vindicate, to prayed that God would hallow his name, make it holy and sacred throughout the earth, and to do our part according to our calling, uh, to do that in our own actions, in our families, uh, in the areas of influence that we have. A third point of application is to take heart in his zeal. What do I mean by that? Be encouraged by his zeal. 
God has not forgotten his church. He has not forgotten his house, his honor, his name. If we are passionate about these things, if we want to see God glorified, if we want to see his church uh, revived and pure, we can be discouraged at times, right? We can be discouraged that does God even care about his name? It's trod in the dust and people walk over it. They, they lie about God or they promote falsehoods and they uh, bring disgrace even ourselves, you know, we'll be just frustrated with ourselves as we sin, as we uh, do things which are unholy. But we can be encouraged that Christ is zealous for God's house. Christ will purify and sanctify the house of God. He will sanctify us in his truth. He will defend and vindicate God's temple. He will overthrow false teachers. They might damage his church, they might lead people astray to destruction, but he will wage war with the sword of his mouth against those who corrupt his church. He gives warning, but he will overturn, overthrow. He is the king, and he will rule his kingdom. So do you worry about the church? It's good to be zealous for his church. But remember at the same time that you are not alone in being zealous about the honor and glory of God and his worship and his people. Jesus cares more than you, and he is powerful to purify it, to reform it, to save it. As God had said, I am a great king, and I will be worshipped, and a pure offering will be offered to my name in all the nations. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so we can be encouraged that Jesus is still on his throne, and he is the head of his church. And he will accomplish this by his power, by his word. Now, the passage goes on. We also find that Jesus talks more about that Jesus talks more about the temple and how that is going to change. I've already alluded to that a little bit. We don't have the physical temple anymore. Uh, but let's go ahead and see what he says in verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus spoken. So in verse 18, his authority is questioned. Now, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Who are you? What right do you have to claim authority over the temple? I mean, that's in one sense a natural question for someone to ask. This is not what a normal person would do. Perhaps they impose too much, though, by asking for a a sign. Uh, But uh, they ask him and uh, question him about uh, how how do you prove your authority for doing these things? And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. A report of this or a similar comment would appear at his trial and his crucifixion. Uh, It's a little garbled uh, as people repeat it, but uh, there was a memory that Jesus had said something about the destruction of a temple and raising it up on the third day. Um, can see that in Mark 14 and 15. And uh, there's also 
a similarity in this text to other parts in the Gospels where in a similar situation, people asked about what sign are you going to show us? And he says, I'll show you this. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Again, pointing to his resurrection. It's the, the preeminent sign vindicating his claims to be the Messiah. He pointed them here again to his coming resurrection, uh, his resurrection on the third day. Um, the Jews misunderstand him. They think that, that he's still talking about a physical temple. It's like, well, we know you're a carpenter. Maybe they didn't, but let's say they did. You know, we know you're a carpenter, but are you really that good? You're going to build a temple in three days? Um, the, the temple that was in front of them was a tremendous, tremendous work. Uh, either it's taken 46 years to build or it was 46 years ago when it was built. It, it took a year and a half for it to get substantially built, but then they continued to work on it actually up until like, I don't know, eight years before it was destroyed. Um, it was a, a tremendous work. And so they're kind of mystified by his comments. But verse 21 adds, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. It's also important to note, you can't tell this, at least in my English translation, probably in most, that the word for temple is different in uh, the second half here than it was for the first. Um, the word for temple in verses 14 through 17 uh, is here, Hiron, which refers to the whole temple complex, including the court of the Gentiles. But in verses 18 through 20 and 22, the word is used, um, <coughs> naos, which particularly refers to the sanctuary, to the center building, to the one where the holy place and the holy of holies uh, would be, uh, which was especially you know, considered uh, the, the presence of God, the holy place of God. The whole thing was holy, uh, but the, the sanctuary, which literally means holy place, uh, that is what Jesus is talking about in verses 18 to 22. And Jesus' body was the temple. He was the word made flesh. He was God and man. Not only did the fullness of deity dwell bodily in him, you know, that this body was where God dwelt because it was the body of God, the body of one who was God. But, but also it, his body was the dwelling place of God with his people, that it was through Jesus that God would dwell with his people, that through the body of Jesus, sinners would be united with God and he with them. And so God dwells with man through Jesus. Something greater than Herod's temple had come. Uh, the resurrected temple would replace the earthly temple. Herod's temple would be destroyed in the year 70 AD. But when they destroyed Jesus's body, it'd be raised on the third day, it would endure and it would be the final temple. That temple prophesied by Ezekiel, from which living waters would flow out into the earth. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. A few points of application on this as well. First of all, believe Jesus, like the disciples. It said, uh, after his resurrection, they saw that sign, they, they believed the words that he said. Believe in Jesus in light of his resurrection. It's the sign that, that uh, asserting his power, his authority, and his truth. He is the king of Israel. He does have the authority to set up his temple, to cleanse the temple, just like Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah. He provides the 
ultimate fulfillment to that promise to David that I'll raise up your offspring who will build my house. Initially fulfilled in Solomon, but Jesus did that as well as the king of Israel. And is the son of God. Notice he said my father's house. He didn't say our father's house. He said my father's house. He was uniquely the only begotten son of God. He wasn't like Moses, a servant in God's house. He was the son over God's house. He is the head of the church. He is the savior. And they did destroy the temple of his body. They did him on the cross they killed his body they handed him over to death on a cross but he he raised himself on the third day father raised jesus jesus raised himself the spirit raised him all, all it's ascribed to all three of them and that's the message of the gospel the sign that was laid before the world a tomb was empty his disciples were surprised the very prophecy of his resurrection had caused soldiers to be placed at his tomb they couldn't stop him Jesus has risen. That's all true. Secondly, not just to believe in his claims, but believe particularly in the claim that he is the temple. Receive fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. He is the dwelling place of God with man. God dwells with his people through Jesus. So join yourself to Jesus by Faith that God might dwell with you. We're going to come along this theme throughout the Gospel of John, you know, not only to believe in him initially, but to abide in him, remain in him, you know, to remain in the vine, to, to hold fast to him, that he is uh, the way that we have fellowship with the Father. But then thirdly, as a member of Christ, to be holy, to be set apart, the church is called the temple as well because of its union with Christ. His body is the temple. And we who are members of his body are also God's temple. The Gospel of John has a lot in common with Revelation, which also is written by John. In Revelation, it ends with a vision of the city of God, with the bride of Christ representing the church. And that city lies four square. Its length and width and height are equal. What's the significance of that? The Holy of Holies was four square. All of its dimensions were equal. But now that holy place fills the whole people. The city of God is the same dimensions as the holy of holies. Because the church is the temple. Why is the church the temple? Because Jesus is the temple and he is united to his bride. Revelation 21 also says, And I saw no temple. That same word for sanctuary. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Jesus is the temple. So they didn't need a, don't need a building to represent that. He dwells with his people, his church. And so we are holy. We are God's dwelling place. We are the temple of God. He will vindicate his people because it's his temple. Paul warns, don't, don't cause damage to the church and, and cause divisions in the church. The person who, who, who destroys his temple, God will destroy him. Likewise, Paul will say, you are the temple of the living God. So cleanse yourself from every defilement of spirit and body. Be holy as he is holy. Just as you wouldn't want to defile the temple of the Old Testament and you know, bring pig's flesh in there or dirty, defiling things, so don't bring sin into your life, into the church, into your own life, for you are temple of the living God. Touch no unclean thing. 
not referring to the ceremonial uncleanness, but to sin. Uh, separate yourself from <laughs> sin because of the privilege, the honor, and the blessing that God has given. Having this honor and grace, cleanse yourself from every defilement with that zeal that Jesus showed for his father's house. So Jesus is zealous for the house of God. He is zealous for the temple. He is the temple. He raised it up in his resurrection and he proves his claim and is building his temple as he unites sinners to himself. And as he sanctifies them, as he purifies them, as he leads them as our king. So believe in Christ, abide in him, and call on him, knowing that he cares for us, for the things that we care about, for the glory of God. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, we thank you for the zeal that you show for glory of God and for his, your Father's house. Uh, we pray that you would indeed vindicate uh, your name. You would vindicate the name of God, that you would purify us and sanctify your church through your word and spirit and power, uh, that you would reform your church, that it might accord with your truth, that you would put forth the power of the gospel to save, that you would build up the church, the temple of the living God, the dwelling place of God with man. We pray that you would fulfill these promises and that you would sanctify each one of us, our own bodies, unto your service as a dwelling place for you. It would be cleansed of every defilement by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.